welcome everybody. Uh, glad that you are joining us as uh, there's a number of people already in here. Thank you. And uh, hopefully some more will jump in. As you can see, um, today, uh, yesterday and today is uh, the, the bald people. Um, <laughs> we uh, Bald and bearded, even though uh, yesterday Sam Shamoon's, okay, he's got a, bald, uh, he's got a, a beard. We'll, we'll call it a beard. But uh, Tim, Dr. Tim Stratton here with us. And he's got that awesome uh, Viking look to him that I don't have. Uh, so I don't know what your ancestry there is, Tim. Uh, you <laughs> say hi, yeah. and uh, why don't you tell us this ancestry, and then we'll just jump into this. Head My head ancestry, on. yeah, it's uh, British and Swedish. Okay. Hey, so I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, I, I, I got that whole uh, Viking stuff <laughs> pretty well. Right. Um, I always appreciate other bald-headed people. Um, I've over the years I've learned to have kind of well well I try to have witty comments to people saying oh you know this stuff I, well I say you know I think too much so my hair ran away and, and things right. of that sort so I'm sure you've gotten that <laughs> as well oh, yeah. but we're bald by choice um, we shave our heads <laughs> yeah um, I'm not bald by choice right here but <laughs> I am right here so. neither am I you know <laughs> this is when it starts falling off. <laughs> Right away. But it's always a good thing. You know, I feel bad for our brothers who who are going bald and have gone bald and then they can't grow a beard because a beard gives you something to do. Right. Like It's just like <laughs> something to take care of. That's so, right. That's right. Yeah. Um, well, uh, thanks again, guys, for joining. Um, if if you would do me uh, a favor and share this out um, on your social media platforms, whether that's right now or um, whether that's af after the interview. I mean, this stuff gets recorded and kept on YouTube. And I know, at least for myself, I'm subscribed to a bunch of YouTube channels and I go back and watch those recorded things um, mm. and, and, and see what's going on and learn from that. And hopefully this will be a learning experience for a lot of people who actually are looking uh, and maybe even in confusion read something like Mormonism. Why are they talking about <laughs> Uh, even though I, I I do have a guest coming on in a couple of weeks to talk about Mormonism, uh, that? but um, that's going to be Brett Conkle. I'm waiting oh. for his response. So he said, yeah, but we're trying to fig figure out the time uh, time frame on that. Um, I'll tell Brett hi for me. I uh, do a lot of work with him, with Maven. Maven, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so he's, he's doing guy. awesome stuff. Yeah. Um, so... Um, Okay, let's just jump into it, right? So you did read that correctly. Uh, we are speaking about free will. We're speaking about apologetics and we're speaking about Molinism. And let me say this, every single one of these subjects can be dealt with on their own for hours and hours and hours on end. But one of the things I wanted to do was actually speak about how they're interconnected, okay? Um, and how if you have a certain theological framework and we'll get into how that impacts your apologetics. I mean, we are an apologetics channel, so we got to kind of bring it back and, and speak about apologetics. Um, so tell us about your past. I know about your past um, and um, how you got into apologetics. I hope you don't know all about it. I, all of us have that, right? Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, in regards to how you got into uh, introduced to apologetics, because... I think you have a very unique story when it comes to, you know, how you're introduced to apologetics and it's kind of a little bit heartbreaking, but, uh, it's, it's a wake up call for those who aren't interested in apologetics, especially those in ministry. So 
let us know what's going on. Yeah, well, you know, although I was involved in youth ministry for several years, surprisingly, I never, I never took theology uh, too seriously. I mean, I, you know, I, was, I, I stayed in the shallow end of the pool. Let's, let's just say it that way. Um, and I didn't take systematic theology very seriously where, you know, I, I might have one belief, theological belief over here and one over here, but really you couldn't connect those two. But I never really thought too deeply about that for years. Um, and systematic theology is trying to make sure that all your uh, theological beliefs fit together logically, that you can connect all the theological dots logically, if you will. So uh, although I believed in God and I believed that Christianity was true, I really had no idea why Christianity was true. As you know, as uh, Dr. Craig might say, I had that inner witness of the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. so I knew it was true. Um, but I didn't have any, uh, I, I couldn't tell anybody the reasons why it was true. I was just like, well, I know it's true. I just have this feeling. Um, and I think there's something to that. But, you know, he, Dr. Craig likes to distinguish between knowing and showing hmm. uh, that you know something's true. Uh, but there's a difference between knowing something's true and, and showing something's true. And you need reason and evidence to show something is true. Um, so I, yeah, I didn't have the show, but I had the know if that makes sense. And I didn't really think too deeply uh, about all these other theological beliefs uh, or why I should affirm them. Now. Yeah. I mean, I did, I did hold a few theological beliefs, but I didn't try too hard to connect to, to connect them all to get uh, logically uh, connect all my theological dots. So yeah, but finally, after 10 years of youth ministry, I finally started to, you know, I was challenged to start uh, solidifying a few of my theological beliefs. And I, I guess I did this primarily at the time by kind of cheating off my neighbors. Hmm. <laughs> so by that I mean, uh, I was heavily influenced by the other pastors at my church and others in the area. Um, so I was I was on staff at a, at a large church at the time. So I started you know looking at what the senior pastor believed and some of my other colleagues there. Uh, and so, for example, although I would have labeled myself a Calvinist and a young Earth creationist, um, you know, before I started working here, uh, and I started working here around 2006, but then around 2007 or 2008, I really started to solidify those views, and so. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm a Calvinist. Uh, Give me all the Calvinist books. Uh, You know, let's, let's, you know, we were having meetings at the church about it. You know, I was, and I guess I I became uh, what's called a cage stage. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine that. That's kind of crazy for anybody that knows me now. Uh, But yeah, I was a cage stage Calvinist. And what that means is um, that it would have been better for me to be locked in a cage than to be around other people in the real world and in the in the church, especially, and, and that even includes my wife, because hmm. I would fight with her over Calvinism because she was raised in the Arminian tradition. I was raised a Calvinist, not by my parents, uh, but by my pastors. My my parents, I I don't think really, uh, they want to really buy into the into Calvinism. I think, or hmm. or they didn't. Uh, but I sure did, because um, my pastors were either Calvinist or they um, would lean that way anyway. Uh, but I really started solidify to solidify my Calvinistic views 
after reading some John Piper books and things like that. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, during my, you know, I dated my wife and the issue came up a couple times. We kind of swept it under the rug. Um, I was willing to look past that because, you know, she was, you know, just a, a beautiful Christian woman. And I was just like, man, I, you know, who cares if she's not a Calvinist? But then after we got married, then mm. it started to become an issue and it really did become an issue. We would fight over it. In fact, the only time I slept the whole night on the couch because <laughs> we were fighting was over Calvinism and Arminianism. That was our our fight, which is just crazy when you think about it. But yeah, I was a cage stager, um, and uh, and I've got an article on my uh, website, freethinkingministries.com. Um, kind of show my hand here a little bit. It's called Molinism Saves Marriages. Oh. And it's it's kind of humorous. It's a little it's sad and funny at the same time. So, uh, Dr. Craig actually read that article in his uh, defenders class once. Mm. So, uh, encourage people to go to my website and read that if they want to. Yeah. By the, the by the way, story. all all of the ministries that Dr. Tim Stratton's involved in is in the description box below. I've already put that. Um, it's there, including the website he just mentioned, freethinkingministries.com org um and uh, it's you're not the only person that's writing on the website there's a number of other people that are writing i haven't read one but i just saw something about um man something about marx someone had written an article about yeah uh we've got a uh an author um who his name is phil bear b-a-i-r and uh he's kind of our resident expert on marxism Mm. and so he i think he's written like four art three or four articles now Mm. kind of focusing on that um, in fact, we're working on a project together um, uh, related to that issue. Uh, might we hope to publish that as a book? So stay tuned for that. Hmm. That's that's in the in the future. So um, Bjorn saying is is the is that the Free Thinking Ministries link? Yes, it is. Yes, that. So the link in the description box. That's freethinkingministries.org. That's the one for yeah or uh, dot com. Writing. Yeah, um, hmm. yeah, it might be dot com. Yeah. Um, so okay. Um, so why, what's so important, right? So, um, about this whole connection between Molinism and free will, um, because, uh, give us a, I, I guess, as you're talking about that, give us a brief des- description of what Molinism is. Yeah. Um, and then we'll talk about free will. Cause you do something very interesting, I think, with how you define free will and, and, um, well, I'll just say, I mean, you said my, kind of my origin story was kind of sad. Uh, that's right. I, yeah. You didn't sad that I fought with my wife, but it actually got kind of worse because uh, as a youth pastor then, some of my students were becoming atheists, and one young man in particular really challenged me. And I didn't know, like I said, I knew that I, I, I had knowledge, and I, I would say that I, I know that Christianity is true, but I didn't know how to show that Christianity is true. And I did not know how to show him that it was true. And he and I think he really lost his faith and became an atheist because I would just ignore his answers. I would say, you got to believe harder. You got to have more faith. You just have to know that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And he said, yeah, but how should, why should I think it is? And I said, you just have to believe it. And that just wasn't cutting it for him. And eventually he just walked away from the church. And in the process, though, he really brought up several objections mm. um, to God, uh, of the existence of God and to Christianity really kind of shook me a little bit. And so I went on a journey to try to find these answers. And uh, um, so I spent the last, really the last 10 or 12 years um, uh, trying to see if Christianity really was true. And I found out that it is 
<laughs> really true. Um, and, uh, and, and now, you know, I've kind of made a shift from apologetics to theology and I got my PhD in theology, but really it's a focus on systematic theology and I try to keep it connected to apologetics. So that's kind of, that's yeah. kind of my, uh, yeah, my thing. I, I mean, I know yeah. how this sort of thinking and, and some of these views have impacted me. And so you, you after that, you pursued a degree in, um, uh, in uh, apologetics at Biola. Yep. That's right. Um, and then you just finished your PhD and your dissertation was on what? It was, uh, it's on human freedom, divine knowledge, and what I call mere Molinism. So it's, so it's really, like... <laughs> yeah, not Mormonism, but Molinism. Um, and, uh, yeah, so a big portion of it is really focused on, uh, free will and what I call uh, libertarian free will. I'll talk about that more later, but, uh, I really seek to answer the question, does humanity possess free will? And if so, what kind is it? And I survey the history of thought behind the doors of the church from, um, I mean, I even get, I even get, you know, touched on the early church fathers, at least in a footnote. And then I really start, um, uh, focusing in on Augustine, uh, moving all the way to, uh, Aquinas um, and everybody in between there. And then I get to the Reformation and study Calvin and Luther and Melanchthon and get all the way to, and, and uh, Arminius um, and get to the, the, the Synod of Dort, discuss that and then go to Jonathan Edwards. Um, and then I, I say, okay, well, who's right and who's wrong with these guys? And then I start to bring in, in, uh, in uh, later chapters, uh, logical argumentation um, and I offer many arguments and different argument, different kinds of arguments um, to ultimately hammer home. Yeah, we do possess free will and uh, and the, in a libertarian sense. And um, and I say, OK, well, how are we going to reconcile this with God's sovereignty yeah. and things like that? So I just start taking a systematic approach, connecting all the theological dots logically. And I think it's uh, by the end of the book, we have a successful um, you know, we've, we've connected all the dots and yeah. we see it. And now for, for those, for those who aren't aware, or, you know, maybe this is the first time you're hearing Molinism. Um, there's various ways we can speak about this and depending how you're using it. Um, I'm Dr. Craig, right. Says Molinism is an effort to uh, reconcile God's sovereignty and human freedom. Uh, that's kind that's of, right. that's kind of this, uh, the same. And, um, some people, um, and I think I've heard you say something like, you know, it's like an in-between, you know, between Arminism and Calvinism, right? Like it, it reconciles yeah. issues both of them struggle with. Um, yeah. This this is an internal house conversation amongst Christians. Um, and um, uh, again, if you're familiar with what the difficulties are, then you're going to notice how Molinism tries to solve some of these issues. Um, apart from what I said in regards to defining M Molinism, can you yeah. give us a, a, a brief description or explanation of it? Maybe even, even if you want to, a little historical kind of footnote, side drop as to yeah, okay. you know, where it comes from. Yeah, yeah, I can do that. Uh, really quickly, you said it was an in-house debate. I would say usually it is, but I'm amazed at how many atheists go after Molinism. Huh. And, and I think the reason, and I talk about this in my dissertation, um, and in my upcoming book that I've got coming out on this, I think the reason is because they see that Molinism obliterates 
all their problems of evil, from the problem of moral evil to the problem of natural evil to the problem of divine hiddenness. If Molinism is true, all of those objections have no teeth in their bite. They're taken off the table. Mm. And without the problems of evil, you really aren't left with much. Um, I mean, that's their that's their go to. They're yeah. like, yeah, well, we this is our reasons for thinking um, uh, atheism is true. Yeah. And you take that away from them, and they're not too happy. Uh, so yeah, I'm amazed at how many debates I've had about Molinism with atheists. So anyway, to get to your question, um, what is Molinism? Um, again, uh, we could probably uh, I could be a guest on your show for the next you know, every night for the next month and, uh, not cover this exhaustively. Uh, but I'll try to cover it in a nutshell here. Um, like you said, Molinism's basically, basically a view of God's sovereignty and human freedom and responsibility, how to get these things together in a systematic way. So you're, they're not contradicting each other because the Bible seems to be clear that God is sovereign over all things. The Bible seems to be clear that humans are really responsible, and I think it implies this uh, this kind of free will, this libertarian freedom. Um, and so if both of these are true, at face value, it doesn't seem like you can connect those dots. But I think Molinism does it. So what is Molinism? Uh, uh, the word Molinism, uh, for your history here, is derived from the last name of a 16th century a Spanish theologian named Luis de Molina. So Molina is where you get Molinism. So it doesn't have to do with dermatology. Uh, it's uh, just his last name, Molina. Uh, so, so Molinism grounds God's sovereignty not only in his omnipotence, and you know, as divine determinists uh, like most Calvinists uh, solely focus. They focus on on God's power to do things, his power to pull things off, right? Um, his power to make things happen. Well, God is omnipotent. Any Christian worth their salt has to admit that. So, but but Molinism uh, grounds God's sovereignty not just in God's omnipotence, but also considers God's omniscience, right? The fact that God uh, knows the the truth value to every proposition. God knows everything. <laughs> we'll say it that way. Um, so namely, uh, Molina pointed out that since God is all-powerful, he's omnipotent, and God has the ability to create many different possible circumstances. He could create it this way, or he could create that way, or create it like this, or create it like that. Right? He called the, uh, these are referred to anyway as possible worlds. So God has the ability to create many different possible worlds or different circumstances. Um, and this would include possible worlds with different possible creatures. And, and this, so if God has the ability to create all kinds of different worlds, God can create a world in which he makes everything happen. We call that causal uh, determinism, where God makes everything happen the same way you would take a toy soldier and make their arms move up and down and move their legs, things like that. Uh, God can make a world where he does that kind of thing to us uh, exhaustively. Or... If God's omnipotent, he would have the power to create a world with creatures who he does not always causally determine. So that is to say it like this. Uh, God has the power to create beings who possess libertarian freedom, and God also has the power not to create any world at all. So, um, well, 
if God was powerful enough to create different worlds, since he's also omniscient, then God would perfectly know all that would happen in each of these potential or possible worlds that are within his power to create. Mm -hmm. If God chose to create them. All right. I know this is a lot to the viewers out there. We're getting into some deep water right now. Just stick with me. Hopefully this starts, we'll get into some, you know, uh, I'll teach you guys how to swim in the uh, waters of Molinism here. But let me say that again. If God was powerful enough to create different worlds, since he's omnipotent, He's also omniscient and knows perfectly all that would happen in each of these potential worlds that are within his power to create if he chose to create them. And this is even the case if God never brought these worlds into existence, God still knows what would have happened if he created any of these other worlds within his power to bring into actuality or into actual existence. So this is a knowledge God's uh, middle knowledge. It's his knowledge of what would have happened if. So everybody out there, just get that in your head. He knows what would have happened if he created differently. So I'll, I'll, let me restate it like this. God knows all that would happen in any possible world he could create. One more time. God knows all that would happen in any possible world he could Create. So notice the difference between would and could. God knows everything he would or all that would happen in any world he could create. So this is a full view of God's omniscience. Uh, and, and this includes what is referred to as middle knowledge. This, this counterfactual knowledge is what would have happened if. So why is it called middle knowledge? Uh, what's this knowledge in the middle of? Um, well, God being omniscient basically has three kinds of knowledge all at once. He has uh, natural knowledge, and that just basically that means that God knows everything he could do. So natural knowledge means could knowledge. God knows what he could do. Um, middle knowledge means all that would happen if he did what he could do, all the different coulds that an omnipotent God could mm-hmm. do. And then God chooses one of these worlds it's called his creative decree and now god has free knowledge and that's all that will happen in the actual world so you got could would and will god knows everything that could happen um and god knows everything that would happen if he did it and then he got god knows everything that will have middle knowledge is simply because it's in between god's natural knowledge and his free knowledge and and i know most Christians, maybe a majority of your viewers, or at least a big percentage of them, probably haven't heard of these terms before. But God's natural knowledge, again, simply refers to everything he knows that he could actualize. Middle knowledge refers to all that would happen if if you were to create a certain world within his power to actualize. And this includes everything that he could do, even if he never does it. So, I mean... God, being omnipotent, can do so many things, and it stands to reason that he doesn't do the majority of things that he could do. That's right. But he still knows what would have happened if he did it, because that's how intelligent he is. And God's free knowledge means that God knows all that will happen in the world he's chosen to create. So in a nutshell, if God is always omniscient, then God perfectly knows all that could happen 
and all that will happen. And he also knows all that would have happened in different situations that he could have created. Again, that God knows all that could, would, and will happen. And middle knowledge brings the wor- brings the wood. <laughs> middle knowledge brings the wood. So that's middle knowledge in a nutshell. And if one affirms this aspect of God's knowledge and then combines this knowledge with the affirmation that humanity possesses the kind of free will that means that God is not always causally determining all of my thoughts or my beliefs or my actions or behaviors, then, as I argue, congratulations, you're a Molinist. If you believe that God is omniscient and has this middle knowledge and you believe that God doesn't always causally determine your thoughts and your beliefs or your actions, maybe he does some of the time, but even if he doesn't do it just a little bit, then you're a Molinist, hmm. and I make that case in my book. Okay. So, <clears throat> again, for, for people who might feel like they're drinking out of a fire hydrant right now, that's okay, okay? Um, uh, when I took my first philosophy class in undergraduates, uh, my professor said something really good. He's, he said, listen, um, you're going to feel like you're drowning a good portion of this class. Like, we just threw you into the deep end and you're drowning. Uh, he said the purpose of it is by the end of the semester – that you feel like you're floating. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, yeah, you're head above the water, right? Like, you're, you're not. And, and hey, that, that's okay because um, there are some very difficult subjects when we're talking about God. Um, mm. And that's completely fine. Relax, don't get anxiety attacks, and um, just take your time studying these things and thinking through it. Um, and um, with this, specifically with this, I like it, it takes some time to kind of repeat the could, would, you know, like, right. and, and then it kicks in. And then even, and then you start noticing counterfactuals in the Bible where you like previously haven't, yeah. right? It's like, oh, right. if this gospel was preached, you know, in Sodom and Gomorrah or something like that, then uh-huh. they would have, right? They're like, oh, this, this stuff is actually being used in scripture. Yeah. Um, and, and so you start seeing it. But again, there, there's nothing wrong with thinking through it. And then actually just don't feel overwhelmed. I, I, that's very important. I'll tell you guys, uh, because I've struggled with a number of these things and like kind of you get panicky and stuff like that. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Your salvation is not reliant on it. You know, God loves you. You're good. Um, it, it's just, it might take some time to think about it. Um, now, um, Tim, you use libertarian free will, libertarian free will, libertarian, you know, like, yeah. uh, um, so help us understand how you define free will. And then after that, we're going to jump into what are the different kind of opinions, schools, you could say, um, on free will. Right? You use, mm-hmm. Because you use determinism, you know, uh, or yeah. causal determinism. So we want to get these terms clarified for people so um, they, they know what, what you mean. And then what specifically you mean when you're, when you're saying libertarian free will. How do you define libertarian free will? Yeah. So there's several ways to understand free will, and they're not all created equal. So <laughs> uh, I affirm a kind of free will called libertarian freedom. Uh, others just simply call it libertarianism. I mean the same thing. Um, you'll also hear this just referred to as libertarian free will, and oftentimes that's abbreviated as LFW. Um, so yeah, that's uh, the, the three. I might back, you know, go back and forth between these terms. So it's they all mean the same thing as far as I'm concerned, libertarianism, libertarian freedom, or libertarian free will. So perhaps the simplest way to understand it 
is that um, libertarianism is often defined as the view that one, free will is incompatible with determinism, and two, that some of our actions really are free, at least some of them. And I would add not just actions, but thoughts. Um, I, that's primarily what I focus on is hmm. free thinking. Um, so uh, now some maintain that an agent is free in a libertarian sense only if they possess the freedom to think or act otherwise. So you, you'll often hear this. Um, uh, some, you know, they'll, uh, they're talking about free will, and when somebody says, well, what do you mean by that? They'll say, the ability to do otherwise. I hear that all the time, uh, even am amongst uh, philosophers. But, uh, so, well, if one can show that an agent possesses an ability to do otherwise, then you have proven that they've got this libertarian freedom. Uh, that is to say that if you can show an ability to do otherwise, then that's sufficient to prove libertarian free will. Sufficient. So I don't know if your uh, viewers are fam uh, familiar with the difference between uh, necessary and sufficient. Mm -hmm. Have you ever talked about that? No, no. So it would make sense for you to quickly explain so, that. Yeah, sufficient. That just means uh, um, if you can show... I mean, basically, that's what it is. If one can show that an agent possesses uh, this ability to do otherwise, then it's sufficient to demonstrate libertarian freedom. But it's enough, talk, we could say, right? Like it's... Uh, pardon me? It's, it's enough. Uh, it's definitely enough, yeah. <laughs> but what many people find surprising, uh, and I find even philosophers uh, find this, uh, might not know this, some philosophers, is that the ability to do otherwise is not necessary for libertarian freedom. So uh, philosophers will distinguish between uh, what is sufficient and what is necessary. So this is the case because if an agent is ever uncaused, and that just means not causally determined by something or someone else, right? So remember how I talked about moving the, the arms of an action figure, maybe mm -hmm. the Star Wars action figure, right? You have Luke Skywalker and you're moving his arm with his lightsaber or whatever. Um, that would be, I am causally determining the action figure's arm to move. I am doing it. It's not my action figure that does it. It's me. So is is my my Star Wars action figure is is it responsible for its movement of its arm? I say no. I'm the one that's doing it. I'm responsible. So, um, so let me. I'll, I'll back up. Uh, if an agent is ever uncaused or not causally determined by something or someone else. And the agent is simply a first mover or the source of his or her thought or action. Even if the agent can't do otherwise for some weird reason, hmm. then they're still free in a libertarian sense. So uh, if an agent is the first mover or the first thinker, uh, right, nothing else is causally determining the thoughts in the person's head or the movements of their arms, even sometimes, then they're even if. For some weird reason, they can't do otherwise. Uh, who knows why? They're still free in a libertarian sense. So that's that's what's necessary. Um, if you've got the ability to do otherwise, then you are the first mover. But even if you can't show the ability to do otherwise, um, but you can show that, that they're the first mover or the first thinker, then they've still got libertarian freedom. So we can distinguish... Here's some more. I don't want to get into two, you know, throw out all these philosophical terms, but I guess I have to. I'll try to explain them here. 
So um, this ability to do otherwise is often referred to as the principle of alternative possibilities. That's often abbreviated as the PAP, the P-A-P, principle of alternative possibilities. Or And the, the colloqu colloquial way to say that is the ability to do otherwise. So that's the version of libertarian freedom. Um, and then you've got the other kind. That's, uh, if you're a first mover, that's just called the source version. Now, I think both are true. I, and I argue for both. But while the ability to do otherwise version, version, like I said, that's sufficient for libertarian free will, I do not claim that it's always necessary. Maybe it is, but that's not my claim. Um, I, I claim that the source version of libertarian freedom is necessary. So if one can logically demonstrate that an agent is at least not occasional, or let me say that again. If one can demonstrate that an agent is at least occasionally not causally determined strings attached right uh, you're not a puppet on a string if you can show there's no strings uh natural or supernatural strings yeah. attached um then one has demonstrated a libertarian freedom even if they have not been able to show an ability to do otherwise so with all that said i typically defend a specific definition of libertarian freedom that seems to entail both versions and i i think it it makes it easier to start thinking about what it is that I think is important here. I think it, <coughs> excuse me. Um, anyway, this is how I define typically. I, 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 firm all the different definitions, but this is the, um, the definition that I spend a lot of time defending Yeah. because I think we can do it. And that's this libertarian freedom is the ability to choose between or among a range of alternative options, each of which is compatible with one's nature. So I'll say that one more time. Libertarian freedom is the ability to choose between or among a range of alternative options, each of which is compatible with one's nature at a given moment. Now, so anyway, that's, that, that's, that's very important, by the way. Um, and normal people and philosophers are not normal people <clears throat> um, um i'll say that i i will admit that uh, there's something very peculiar and odd about us um uh, normal people would would kind of read past that but um why is that important because everybody even in this discussion right even the most staunch like christian determinist um, will believe that god has libertarian freedom me they meaning should. that God could have chosen not to create, right? The ability right. to do other ones. Um, mm -hmm. So what, when, when people say things like, could God sin? Could he stop existing? Can he create a you know, rock so large he can't pick up or whatever like that? That's why uh, it's so important to say, as long as it's compatible with your nature. For example, God can't stop existing uh, yeah. because that wouldn't be compatible with his nature. Uh, so just... Just to point that out, guys, definitions matter, okay? They really do. I'm a firm believer in definitions. But check this out. If God's omnipotent, I mean, think about what that means. By definition, if God can do everything that's logically possible, mm -hmm. then God must have libertarian freedom because he stands to reason he has not done everything right. that he could do. Um, but he could have. So he could have done otherwise. So he's got the PAP version, the principle of alternative possibilities, and he's got the source version, um, which is he is the first mover. That's right. 
Nothing is causally determining him. So he's got both versions. You can show that. Now, I also think there's sometimes there's some things that he uh, I mean, I, I argue that God is love and he always acts. He all he does love every creature he's ever created, including, I argue, Satan and the demons. Right. Mm. They just don't love him in return. And so uh, and I argue that true love requires libertarian freedom and all that. kind. Of, I'll get into that later. Um, but. So God, I argue, uh, loves necessarily, but he still loves in a libertarian sense because nothing is co- nothing other than God is causing God to love. He is the, still the first lover, yeah. <laughs> if you will, the first mover there. And I, I discussed this on my website in a fairly recent article within the last couple of months, I think, called The Best Kind of Love. And I talk about um, the nature of love and why God has to create us with the pap version of love. Just, um, I, you probably heard this before, but, but um, so Bjorn wrote, if we tested the principle of alternative possibilities, is that a pap test? Oh, <laughs> not even going to go there. <laughs> so, um, I've never heard that before. Okay, so th- that that might that, hey, listen, uh, that might be an idea for for a possible uh, you know article you might want to write. No, that <laughs> with a ten foot pole. <laughs> I'll touch a lot of things. <laughs> oh man. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. Okay, back. Uh, let's 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 come back here. I gotta go. I'm done. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> okay it's uh, oh man <clears throat> thanks uh, that, that was our laugh at least that's for my laugh for to start off the day and that's the laugh uh for tim to uh, he's gonna end his day <laughs> uh, uh think thinking through that <laughs> as uh, yeah. as it's night okay so okay this ability to do otherwise so it could it be you know god could have decided not to create anything at all and, and he would have been yeah. fully sufficient within the trinity to just exist um, yep. you know, so prior to, um, you know, his decision, uh, or, or prior to creation, he uses these modes of logic in his freedom to create human beings who will have freedom, libertarian freedom, right? I believe that's true. Yeah. yeah. That's what I, that's what I argue. For. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so, so what are the alternate views of free will? If you will, or not free will, like you know, I mean, there's people who deny it, right? But well, yeah, I mean, well, okay. So there's another view that I don't think is really worthy of the name free will or freedom, but be that as it may, the other contender is known as compatibilism mm-hmm. or compatibilistic freedom or compatibilistic free will. So you see the difference between libertarian free will or compatibilistic free will. Now I don't think uh, compatibilism deserves to have uh, the term free will or freedom attached to it. But we've got to deal with it because that's in the literature and uh, there's philosophers who hold to it. So let me just discuss compatibilism. Um, Compatibilism uh, is merely the thesis that exhaustive determinism is true. uh, And that means that something other than you causally determines everything about you. So 
Um, it's the thesis that something other than you causally determines everything about you, everything, yet somehow you're still free or as they usually say, morally responsible for your thoughts, actions, feelings, or your thoughts, actions, beliefs, and behaviors. Mm -hmm. So there's really, it seems to me, when you start having these conversations, there's some shifting of goalposts going on and stuff like that, and you really have to nail, uh, nail this down before you want to have a good conversation with somebody that holds this view. Because, again, I, uh, it seems to me, at least these days, um, that compatibilism or compatibilists uh, are more focused on moral responsibility than free will. So I just think, man, you should just call it compatibilistic moral responsibility. Mm. Um, but really, this boils down to a thesis. So, so it's the thesis that determinism can be true and you're still free or morally responsible um, for your thoughts or actions. So to clarify, the compatibilist will say that um, all compatibilism is is a thesis saying that determinism can be true and you can still be morally responsible. Now, Calvinists who hold to compatibilism, like I said, it seems there's kind of a bait and switch going on um, when arguing for compatibilism or so it seems to me. Hmm. Um, so a libertarian, I've experienced this, a libertarian might start to argue against compatibilism um and then they'll say hey man it's just a thesis man it's just a thesis and, okay fine whatever uh what i do in my dissertation and this is being published by as a book by whippenstock uh, hopefully this fall um but what i do in this book is I, I say look i'm not concerned with the thesis um i'll grant the thesis uh that uh determinism and moral responsibility could be true. I don't really think it is, um, but I'll, I could grant that for the sake of argument. And But what I want to do or what I'm concerned with is logically demonstrating that this thesis cannot always describe reality. Maybe it does sometimes. I don't think it does, but I'll grant it for the sake of conversation. Um, well, I guess, you know, I need to nuance that, but I'm not going to go into that right now. Um, I w basically though, what I do is I logically demonstrate that the thesis of compatibilism cannot always describe reality. Mm -hmm. So that means exhaustive determinism cannot always describe reality. So that's what I do. And in fact, when it comes to compatibilism, um, let me quote, uh, John Searle. Uh, I say that he pulls no punches Now, John Searle. I think he's an atheist, so he's not in the whole debate about Calvinism, Arminianism, Molinism, or anything like that. Uh, he, he doesn't have a theological axe to grind, but let me pull this up. Uh, yeah, Searle says this, quote, I think compatibilism simply misses the point about the problem of free will. Libertarianism is definitely inconsistent with determinism. To repeat, the determinist says... Every action is preceded by causally sufficient conditions that determine the action. And the libertarian asserts the negation of that. For some actions, uh, and I would say and thoughts, the antecedent causal conditions are not sufficient to determine the action or the thought. And then he says, I cannot think of any interesting philosophical problem of free will to which compatibilism 
provides a substantive answer, end quote. That's in his book, Rationality and Action, on page 278. Now, Searle, uh, I mean, he's one of the leading philosophers of mind out there. So I like to, I like to quote him, uh, especially when I'm having these conversations with atheists, because atheists deny free will, typically, for the most, most of the time. I, I, I would argue they have to. I would too, uh, and and that's why the majority of them do. Um, there's a few that try to get out of it. Um, I don't think they can do it. Uh, but here's the bottom line: if the thesis of compatibilism actually does always describe reality, then exhaustive determinism would be true, whether it be naturalistic determinism or theological determinism. Some form of exhaustive determinism would be true. However, I logically, in my book, I logically demonstrate that exhaustive divine determinism is false. And so, therefore, the thesis of compatibilism always describing reality is false. So, mm. does that make sense? Say that again for, for me and for... Uh, yeah, okay. More for um, me, I would say. Yeah, so here's my bottom line quote. If the thesis of compatibilism actually describes reality. Mm -hmm. So the thesis, again, is determinism and moral responsibility or free will are compatible. So just say determinism and free will or determinism and moral responsibility are compatible. Um, if that's the case, and that always describes reality, then exhaustive determinism would be true because that's the thesis. So you're saying exhaustive determinism um they're, they're saying that's uh well so technically you can be a libertarian and a libertarian uh well you can be a libertarian and still affirm the thesis of compatibilism hmm. uh you could say yeah i'm a libertarian i think we have libertarian free will but the thesis um is coherent or whatever um but I'm not interested in that. I want to show that your thesis, the compatibilistic thesis, cannot always describe reality. So I'm blowing up the idea that exhaustive determinism is true, whether it be exhaustive naturalistic determinism or exhaustive divine determinism. Um, I blow up those ideas. They, they, we've got to have libertarian freedom, at least occasionally, at least sometimes, um, and that's, you know, I offer several arguments for that in my okay. book and I, I can share some of those with you okay. here. So, well, we're, I, I mean, um, there's a time crunch and, um, and, and we'll see, maybe we might need to do this again on, on these finer, uh, points. Um, uh, how so much time do th we th have the question? Well, I don't know. Uh, well, it typically goes an hour, hour 10. So we're like, <laughs> 50 minutes into it, but that's fine. I mean, we, we, I think we can, we can do that. Uh, if you want to respond to this question that just came up, do it. If not, we'll move on. Uh, but someone said, um, how do you, how do you respond to, or what's your best answer to the grounding objection and the need for truth, uh, makers? Uh, I think as Kirk McGregor said, that's a utterly worthless objection. Uh, <laughs> you want to listen, if you want to listen to this, I, I discuss this in my book. This is a topic for a whole night. If you want me to get into grounding, um, I can, but we will need to scrap everything else. You, yeah. You want to talk 
But I, I would point people to my website right now. There's several articles on that there. Get my book. So the book's, um, is, the book's not out yet. It's not out yet. It'll okay. be published by Whip and Stock. Uh, I think it's supposed to be out this fall. Um, but, but yeah, uh, also you can listen to my uh, my podcast called The Free Thinking Podcast. And I interview Dr. Kirk McGregor, who's, in my opinion, the leading Molinist scholar in the world today. Um, and uh, and he, on that podcast, we discussed the grounding objection uh, quite a bit. And he, you know, he's got a kind of a famous quote from there. He's like, the, the grounding objection is utterly worthless, and here's why. So go to that right now. If you want me to come back on your show uh, in the near future and discuss more of these questions, okay. I'd be happy to do that. Yeah, but because I, I, want, I want to kind of switch gears here and speak. Uh, I mean, we've kind of set the stage and stuff um, to, to speak about um, practical Christian decisions and evangelism. Right. So right. Um, how does this... Okay, so we spoke about this free will and then Molinism, conception and stuff like that. But how does Molinism help practical you, you in you? Well, sorry, how does Molinism help you in your day-to-day life, right? Because if, if you do think you actually uh, have free will and a libertarian free will and, uh, and uh, God knows all sorts of possible stuff, um, then it's bound to impact you a certain way. Right. For example, like pastorally, uh, yeah. one of the one of the issues that de- you deal with when you work with um, young adults is the issue of like selecting a mate, right? Like getting married, yeah. and yeah. Um, I, I think this actually relates to that. It's like, is there one person for me, or are there multiple people for me? Like, what's going on? And mm-hmm. and this actually bothers a lot of people because they might actually be dating someone, and then at the same time questioning and doubting whether this is the right person for them so right this i'm just using this as an example because it does impact your decision making yeah yeah you're exactly <laughs> right i mean molinism has helped me <laughs> help me realize that i am ultimately responsible for my thought life and my moral and rational actions and so many other things in between that i I can take my thoughts captive, according to 2 Corinthians 10, 10, 5, before they take me, according mm-hmm. to Colossians 2, 8. So right there, that's libertarian freedom, right? I can I can take my thoughts captive, or I can let them take me captive, and I've got a responsibility to take my thoughts captive. So I'm a, I'm a free thinker, and that means I can constantly uh, survey my thinking, or at least I should, yeah. and survey my beliefs. I can do these things. I can I can take my thoughts and my beliefs. I can compare them to reality. I can I can gain knowledge of reality because I'm a free thinker and I don't have to just uh, wait for someone or something else to uh, control all of my thoughts. Uh, I, I am responsible. So and so sorry, I mean, uh, but by when you say responsible, this is very important because I I mean I've seen Christians make really really um anti-biblical lifestyle decisions um yeah. for example and again just going off the marriage you know there's people who've gotten married two three years later obviously they've had marriage issues as all of us have right i mean it's complicated and and they've actually 
decided to get divorced because they've argued this wasn't the right person for me. Uh, I was out of God's will or something, you know, like various, like they've theologically justified their sin. Yeah. In which maybe Molinism will come in there, right? And say, no, 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 no. You made a decision. You're responsible for your decision. And you, I mean, it's not like you're stuck in the situation. You, You can actually make it better. So, and you didn't surprise God. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's not like he's like, oh, man, you know, what happened here? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and uh, I mean, some might say, well, you know, art, you know, that's, uh, you know, not a good example or something like that. But listen, it's a real example. P- people uh, yeah, make decisions true. like this. Yeah. Um, and there's even people. Um, I came across a guy who had left the faith. And depending how what your view on this stuff is, his justification is um <laughs> this is very strange, by the way. And I know my Calvinist brothers and friends will say, well, yeah, that's not what we're saying. And I know, but in his mind, he's not elect. So this guy's not denying, the, you know, God's existence. He's just oh. saying, I'm not one of the elect. Oh, wow. So, so he's, he believes Christianity is true and believes Calvinism is true and says, I'm not one of the elect. That, therefore, I'll just go live however I want. That's right. And and listen, I'm not saying that this isn't an argument against Calvinism or something like that, right? I'm just talking about the reality of someone's life and, and the bad decisions people make where I would kind of approach him and say, hey, listen here, friend, you know, you're not stuck with that. There's other yeah. frameworks that will help you understand this um, and actually change the way you're living. Um, and again, I'm, I, because I've dealt and I do deal with a lot of young adults and I, I you know, even my peers, um, you know, newly married and stuff like that. When these issues are coming up, issues about raising children, um, yeah. I mean, it, your thoughts, your theology, your ideologies are going to impact the kind of parent you are, the kind of friend you are and the sort right. of decisions you make. Yeah. Um, and so some of this stuff will actually help you and enhance your life and make it better. Where you're not kind of living in your guilt saying, oh, man, I made this bad decision and I was forced to do it or something like that. Right. Like God put me in this pickle and I can't get out of it. It's like, no, 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 you're responsible for your actions and you should actually work at making the situation better and and be a loving husband and be a loving wife and, and, you know, live out the way Christ wants you to live your life out. So, um, Uh, Bjorn says that is a, that's a little bizarre. Hey, it is a it's not a little bizarre. It's bizarre. I I grant that. But again, it's it's the reality that this individual lives in. And um, well, you know, I've, I've uh, challenged. You know, I found myself. I'm not a licensed counselor or anything, so I use the term counseling very loosely. But when I find myself in a counseling or a discipleship situation, you know, somebody's coming to me, asking me. You know, they know I, I used to be a pastor, and so they're asking me for maybe pastoral advice. And I, I do. I, uh, I advise them with Molinism in mind. I advise them with, you're a free thinker. Take your thoughts captive before they take you. Mm-hmm. Do you I, I say, do you know what reality is? Right? Now, Christianity is true, right? I mean, if they're Christians, they're coming to me for pastoral right. advice. I'm like, what is ultimate reality? You know it. Let's go through our apologetics arguments if you if you need to do that. Look at what we know. Look at how we know the Bible is true, how we know that God exists even if we didn't have the Bible. What we know about Jesus, how we know that Jesus is uh, is God. 
you know, and how he was raised from the dead and what he taught, how we can know what he taught. Now, this is reality right here. Now, take your thoughts captive. You don't have to be taken captive by bad or shallow philosophy or bad thinking. You can take your thoughts captive. So I don't care how you feel at the time. Take your feelings captive to obey Christ. Take your thoughts captive to obey Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 5. Take them captive That's before right. they take you. That's libertarian freedom, right? And then also I, I'd say, look, when people have come to me uh, and, and, and they're experiencing um, evil of some kind, whether it be moral evil or natural evil. I mean, I had to do a funeral for uh, my neighbor and good friend. His, his, uh, his wife died at a young age and they had two little girls. And I'm in the middle of the funeral and, and uh, pretty soon the whole crowd – starts wanting to know why God would allow the, the wife and this mom to die. And, uh, you know, and I'd say, well, man, now's not really the time to have this discussion. And now, er, then everybody's hands started raising. Like, yeah, we want to know. We want to know. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm like, so, so I appealed to middle knowledge and how God knows some things and how this would be with, uh, uh, second Corinthians four seventeen in mind, these light momentary afflictions prepare us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Anyway, I, I'm getting off track here, but I, I connected all these dots, and but I, I used Molinism as the foundation. Yeah. So, so often when I find myself in counseling situations or pastoral advising situations, um, I, I, my advice is given with Molinism in mind. Um, and it, and it, I've seen it help. I mean, after that funeral, everybody's coming up to me, giving me hugs, thanking me for that yeah. uh, message that I was not prepared to give at the time. <laughs> you um, always, hey, man, you, preachers always got to be ready. Uh, <laughs> yeah, first Peter. <laughs> always be ready. Context, but, yeah, yeah. Um, so Deanne says something, and I want to respond to this very quickly. It says, why do we have to all figure it all out? We love him because he first loved us. Then we obey him. We love him. Then he gave us joy for strength. Strength. If we make wrong decisions, we can be healed. Uh, amen to that. But let me just clarify something here, Deanne. Um, this is a part of loving God, I, and and I don't think we will and we can have everything figured out because we're not God. But for me, thinking about these things and trying to figure them out is a part of loving God. I don't separate these two things. Okay. If I want to love God, I want to know God. Okay. It's the same way if I want to love my kids, um, I want to know them. So I ask them questions. What do they like? What do they dislike? Right. I mean, marriage is a very good example of this. Um, That's why the idea that you are very much in love when you get married and then you lose that throughout the process is a completely idiotic idea. Right. It should be you get married and then you learn to love one another throughout your life and you love your spouse a lot more at the end of your life than you did in the beginning. That that is an ideal because you know about them more. Um, And and part of this is asking questions, reasoning through it uh, when an individual changes. So it's 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 within this. Um, And I'm not saying you're saying this, by the way, Deanne, but there I've met a number of Christians who who say this stuff is very difficult to think about. Um, and then that makes them lazy when it comes to thinking about God. Okay, so um, knowing these things, like I said, that's why I asked him this this important question about making decisions. Like, how does your theology, right, impact your life decisions? Because it does. It really does. And I think it 
and you've seen this in 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 your ministry and and life tim um it does when there's serious questions about life and about right. god right oh, when yeah. especially when they're suffering like the one you just mentioned R- right yeah i mean this if i didn't have this foundation this molinistic foundation i would have never been able to provide a good answer at that funeral um and i do discuss this in my book by the way i don't talk about the funeral but i discuss the problems of evil how molinism uh can address these things um um so really i mean the problem of evil uh is something that even christians struggle with it's not just an atheistic objection it's something that we really struggle we want to know why would a if god's all powerful he could stop this pain, evil, and suffering in my life or in other people's lives. Mm-hmm. If he's omniscient, he would know how to do it. And if he's all loving, he would want to. But look at all this pain, evil, and suffering. Well, gosh, I mean, so the atheist is saying, well, this is why I'm not a, I don't believe in God. And the Christian is like, oh, I know it's true, but man, this really rocks my faith. Maybe they have a improper view of God then. Um, and I think that's really, that's... Uh, what I was guilty of um, in well, the past. And, and listen, Bible characters ask this. I mean, read the Psalms. Yeah. Right? One of my favorite oh, books in, in, in the Bible is the book of Habakkuk. And that's what Habakkuk is saying. Where are you? Right? Like these ruthless, evil Assyrians are going to are gonna uh, come and they're going to destroy us and stuff like that. Where are you? Right? Yeah. So the problem of evil is, is there's an experiential aspect or, you know, if we don't want to say evil, we say suffering. Um, there's a real issue there. Um, and I think when Christians ask these questions um, and when atheists and unbelievers have questions, uh, whether they've experienced it or it's more in a theoretical sense, we should yeah. have a, a reasonable response. And I guess this takes us to my final question as yeah. we'll conclude with this. So how does Molinism impact your evangelism? And apologetics and evangelism for me are together, right? Mm. Um, they're, they're not separate things and I don't like separating them. Uh, because then we get big heads and, and, and that's that's probably never a good thing. Um, uh, so how does it impact your evangelism when you're talking to uh, unbelievers and then you're kind of incorporating this into your apologetics? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, that's a good question. And let me tie that in with something you just said, because uh, back in my cage stage Calvinist days, um, I remember praying for one of my unsaved friends at the time. My son was uh, little at the time. He was probably five or six. And uh, he was playing some video games. And uh, I remember I was I was in my room and having a quiet time and then just praying for uh, you know, some time in the scriptures and then just praying for uh, my friends who didn't know Christ. And as I was praying, I was like, man why am I wasting time praying for, just call him Joe. Why am I wasting time praying for Joe? God knows if he's elect or not. Yeah, he's not a, he's definitely not a Christian right now, but God knows if he's elect before the foundation of the world or not. Um, I don't need to pray for him. My prayer doesn't do anything. If God's already determined if he will elect him, uh, if he will be in heaven or not. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with my prayers. And so... I stopped and I went to play video games with my son. I remember that night. I, I just, I'm like, why am I, why am I even praying? Uh, <laughs> I'd rather play video games. Um, and, uh, and that also affected the way I did evangelism. So really, I think uh, Molinism can help answer this, you know, prayer and evangelism because 
now my prayer life has radically changed and my evangelism has, has changed for the better. Um, so I, I guess with, uh, uh, with, how would I say it with, uh, with prayer, um, our, our prayers do not change God's plan established from eternity, but God knew if he created me in these, in this circumstance, how I would pray if he created me and he chose to create this anyway. So if you're wondering if God created a world in which he knew how you would pray, well, you get to freely choose to pray and find out or not. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense, but God, God factored in my prayers that he knew I would pray logically before his creative decree. Mm -hmm. Before God's creative decree, he knew how, how I would pray, factored that in and said, let there be. Yeah. So our prayers do have an impact in a counterfactual sense. That's really, probably really, um, uh, I'll discuss this more in my book in, in the last chapter. But on evangelism, it's very similar. I could say it like this. While our evangelism today shapes what happens in the present world, our evangelistic efforts were known by God from eternity past and were incorporated into his plan before he said, let there be boom, right? Mm -hmm. So so while, my evangel while the evangelism I do today and my evangelistic efforts, if you will, do not change God's plan established from eternity past, God knew what would result from my sharing the gospel with an unbeliever and this knowledge of my free evangelism influenced in a counterfactual sense, what has become God's plan for the actual world. So, so bottom line, share the gospel. Even if you don't understand what I just said, share the gospel and pray. These things actually make a difference. Yeah. Um, again, I, I, I kind of try to pack all these, these three separate subjects into this one talk, uh, one interview. And, um, um, Every single one of these can be, uh, you know, again, we, we can spend hours and hours and speaking about it. But I kind of wanted to get people's kind of appetite wet um, and, and pursuing this because these are real struggles that we go through. Um, you know, I actually remember exactly where I was when I had the recollection that why am I praying? I've, I've never been a Calvinist, so I've never gone through that. Um, but I've had a lot of friends and I have tons of friends who I love and are close to me. I do ministry with them who are Calvinists. Uh, but I remember one time praying. I remember exactly what I was doing. And I said, wait, why am I praying like a Calvinist? I don't believe that. <laughs> um, so, and, and part of that is because I wanted to be genuine in my prayer. Like I want to actually talk to God, uh, uh, you know, according to the stuff I believe about him and, and, and the way he acts in the world. And, and I actually do, if we do not pray and we don't ask him for certain things, certain things won't happen. Like, so um, that, you know, the, the, I don't want to get into all sorts of details on that and we can, but uh, that changes the way I live my life, the attention I give to certain things and, um, you know, the direction I choose to pursue uh, my life in. Um, so, uh, again, hopefully this interview has, uh, it's not exhaustive and really is not because it's, it's going to mean, um, you mentioned Kirk, Dr. Uh, Kirk McGregor, right? Like, so he, as far as I know, right, he's written the, uh, the like, he's he's the only person, I think, that's written a systematic theology of monism, yeah. right? Right. Um, and I'll tell you this, Dr. Craig is uh, just starting to write a systematic theologic, uh, theology book, 
And of course, that will be through the lens of Molinism and discuss Molinism quite a bit too. So I'm really looking forward to that. But yeah, right now, uh, Dr. McGregor has, I think, the only book out there through the lens of Molinism on systematic theology. Dr. Craig's got one coming out. And my book that's coming out uh, will have a whole lot of systematic hmm. theology in it. So Yeah. Um, so uh, someone said, please make a video about prayer. Thanks for the idea. That's uh, I, I will write that down. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you if, if uh, uh, you said maybe I could come on another time. I would love to come on and talk about the uh, at least two things: the reasons why we know we have. Well, let's do three things: the reasons why we know we have free will, uh, arguments for God's middle knowledge, and uh, addressing the grounding objection and maybe some other objections. There we go. Okay, so so we got some future videos uh, that that we could potentially make. Um, yeah. Again, I I, I want to make these videos so that people are aware of these conversations. I I know, thinking through these things, uh, I know the impact that it's had on my life and and the way I do things and the decisions I, I make. Um, and and they're very important, even just about like what it means to love God and pursue God and and be in His presence. I mean, I all those things matter. Uh, so. Tim, thank you very much for, uh, I know it's, it's late where you are. It's later in yeah. the day and, and I don't know what your sleeping schedule is like, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> probably you'd be asleep if you're not talking to me. Um, yeah. so I want to thank you, man. Thank you so much for, for joining me again. Everybody. Thanks for sticking around, uh, this, um, hour and 12 minutes, uh, share this out again. Um, Everything, well, not everything you need to know uh, about uh, Tim, <laughs> but the stuff where you can pursue what he does and, and his YouTube channel, it's all in the description box. Go check that out and subscribe and, and follow him and, and dialogue with him. He's got a lot of content out there, including his podcast. Um, so uh, deal with that, struggle with it, think through it. And if you got disagreements, I'm sure he wouldn't mind hearing them. <laughs> and I'll tell you, if you go to our YouTube channel, just uh, search for Free Thinking Ministries on YouTube and uh, comment on some videos. I, I try to, I can't get to all of them, but I, I try to look at at least most of them. So yeah. and try to respond if they're good questions. So. Amen. Well, thank you guys. God bless you. Um, I will post some newer, shorter videos, and then we got some other interviews coming up uh, within the next two weeks. Take care. Uh, if you are in America, uh, well, have a good night. Uh, if you're in my part of the world, well, have a good day. So uh, take care, everyone. God bless. Thanks, Arthur. Mm -hmm.